everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? We are just getting started with Troy Hinkey. We just talked a little bit about where we are in the world, both of us, and um, we'll we'll now get going. Um, we sure appreciate you coming, and uh, please ask questions. Um, this is going to be an interview format. I'm just going to, uh, you know, what I actually was talking through my phone. But I'll switch to my computer audio because I was having trouble with it. I don't need that. So I will put that aside. Um, I usually use the phone to connect to these, which a lot of people don't even know you could do. So you can actually be on these webinars without having any um, video and just come in on audio. Um, I do the audio on the phone mainly because I have a satellite internet system and um, it's delayed a little, although this is buffered really well. I, at least I see my lips moving perfectly with my voice. And, and, and sometimes the sound quality isn't as good, especially when I have the webcam on. Um, so anyway, but I'm not using it, so I don't need it. Um, please ask questions. There's a little question box on the right-hand side of your screen that you can just put questions in. You may not ask them as they come up. Mark is going to help us, and Areeb both are going to help us sort of monitor those and, and uh, make us aware of them. We're, we're probably not going to be looking at the question box. So um, if you could do that, that'd be awesome. A couple of announcements before we get going here. Um, one, we have another webinar this week um, on Friday. So um, if you want, you could... Uh, attend that, and it's at uh, three o'clock Mountain Time. So it'd be the same time as this one, wherever you are in the world. So that you should actually already have an invitation for that, so you can sign up. You'll get another one as an email um, soon. And um, secondly, um, I've been putting this in some of our emails. We're looking for a marketing director, uh, which is someone that will help us with live events here at our site in Colorado, uh, Northern Colorado. We are in a very beautiful place, by the way. Um, that, that person could either live here on site with us or could be in the local area and off site, or could be completely remote. You would probably have to travel some for some of our events, um, but mainly it's getting, it's finding speakers, um, getting our, you know, all the food organized. Um, it's it's really sort of a, a a really broad based, not a lot of experience needed, um, but um, we uh, we're open to either any of you or if you have friends that are interested in it. Last announcement is we have something that for years no a lot of our members have not known about. We're now going to make it a lot more um, 
well known. We've got plans that are literally step by step. There's images in them. We're actually going to add video to it also to build what, what we call a pallet shed that is big enough for um, livestock, horses, cattle, you name it. It's um, marginally a little short for a horse, but they would have to have their, they have to be an angle, you know, but horses like getting in stalls and angles anyway. Um, and oh, we, we only have that sort of advertised on one of our more obscure websites. We get requests for it almost daily, and we're gonna start making that more available. We used to give it away free. We're going to charge five, $4.99, $5 for it, um, just because we've got time and effort in the video that we're doing and other things. But um, that that's something that, that is announced on a new one too. So several opportunities to make some money, um, new webinars, as well as something you could do that would, so by the way, that pallet, we've got 40 of them here at our farm, and they take about four hours to build if you have no building skills. If you've got some building skills, um, you can do it faster. You could do it with a hand saw. I would recommend some kind of a, uh, of a of an electric saw, but um, again, everything is shown as to what's needed. A lot of the materials you can get for free. So anyway, and I love this slide because it's a good start for us to start to, to ask Troy some questions. Um, he's going to talk to us today about um, compost tea and what he does to make it and you know different things, I'm sure, wide variety of things. Um, again, we're going to talk to him about his life a little bit and, and uh, what he's up to. He told us he, he's living outside of Philadelphia. Um, and anyway, let's go ahead and start with that. Um, Troy, um, you said you moved to where you're at now for a, a variety of reasons. Um, and do you have any ongoing relationships with Rodale? Uh, is it, does any of that continue? No, um, I haven't had any continuing relationship with Rodale. Uh, I had, I was actually just mentioning before we got on here that I had emailed a lady recently who's in the research department there. She had done some compost extract research and uh, printed a few papers in the past on compost extract, uh, specifically with nematodes. And I can't think of the other one offhand. Uh, but I reached out to her just to let her know I was back in the area and to see if she'd be interested in doing any type of compost extract extract research this summer or in the future. Cool. Um, let's start with a little bit, you know, what generated your interest in compost teas? <laughs> well, well, let's back up even a step, because I know people that will, will ask this, what is a compost tea? How can I drink it? And can I put alcohol in it? And does it go good with my breakfast? Or how does that work? That's a good question. And it's a question I often get asked. Um, compost tea is basically a liquid form of compost. And it's going to provide plants and soils with specifically the microorganisms 
that plants and soils need that are then gonna help to provide them in turn with nutrients and minerals that the plants and soils need. Um, and I have had someone who purchased compost tea that uh, did not realize that it was something you didn't drink and had drank it shortly afterwards. Um, but yeah, to get, to let you know where, how I got started doing this, um, I grew up uh, really into nature, really into recycling and environmentalism and things like that. Uh, I went back to school at the age of, um, let's see, 29 and went to what's used to be called the Maharishi University of Management in Fairfield, Iowa. And I was going for um, organic food production and renewable energies. And through that, I signed up with a class in the springtime with Dr. Elaine Ingham that was in their May block. Uh, that college does the uh, block system where you take one class at a time and you have it for 28 days and then move on to another class. And so for the May block, I had signed up for this living soils class with Dr. Elaine Ingham, not even not having any idea who she was or or her prominence or anything. And uh, through that class, I just had an aha moment and knew that was what I exactly what I wanted to pursue and do in the future. But I lacked any microscope experience uh, other than maybe in biology in high school, use a microscope for a couple of days. And so I wanted to apprentice on the microscope and I specifically wanted to apprentice with Elaine. I didn't want to learn from anyone who she had taught, but from her directly, and that year she had just become the chief research scientist at the Rodale Institute and was going to be there for the complete month of July. And so I basically kind of dropped everything that I was doing and I went to the Rodale Institute for the month of July that year to apprentice with her. Um, and basically everything I've had all kinds of serendipitous moments since then that's uh, been tied to that whole experience with school and everything, but they, Rodale liked me a lot. Uh, they liked my work ethic and they wanted to bring me on to work alongside Elaine and someone there found a grant, compost grant. Uh, and within a couple months of me leaving to do apprentice on the microscope with her, I came on board to work in the research department with Elaine, uh, kind of like her right-hand man doing compost and compost tea research on large and small scales. So that's how that's how it all began, um, and I just consider myself extremely fortunate to this day to have been able to start, you know, at such a prestigious place as the Rodale Institute with my composting career. Very cool. So earlier, as we were getting started, I was telling Troy that I have some experience with early, very early founders of Rodale, and, um, and uh, Elaine is a, a really good friend. Elaine has done a number of webinars with us, and I came very close to um, becoming the CEO of Soil Food Web, and uh, we just couldn't put everything together, and uh, this is about a year ago, actually. Oh, wow. Um, just End up, didn't end up doing it. Um, and uh, so, again, 
She's probably, well, no, not probably. She is absolutely our most popular speaker. We do an Elaine Ingham webinar and we sell out. You can you can only have a thousand people on a go to webinar or webinar and and every time we've had Elaine on, we get more than a thousand. We have people waiting to get on. So anyway. Yes, I can imagine. And I come from the opposite direction as you. I um uh, I'm a professional microscopist. Um, and so my PhD is in toxicology and aquatic. It's actually water related. But I, but I studied microorganisms in, so in benthic environments, which is the soils under the water. And so I used a scanning electron microscope, a transmission electron microscope, every kind of light microscope you can imagine. And, uh, and then my wife is also a microscopist. So, um, and we have, we were able to take with us um, from one of our businesses that we founded and directed a, at the time, I have no idea what it's worth today. It would, it would be very difficult to ever sell it. But at that time, a $20,000 Olympus um, combination phase contrast and polarizing. Uh, microscope so you could switch and with the different optics for it but yeah unbelievable optics of uh, nice. really fun anyway we have some commonalities in there so yeah i was gonna say yeah, you probably had a lot to talk about with elaine oh yeah yeah we did um and my daughter lives just moved about a year and a half ago to eugene so not immediately adjacent to where she is, but very close. So, yeah. um, so let's talk now about making compost tea, uh, and specifically, really how you do it, and and how you um, at least talk about it when you're talking with others. Um, and then we'll go back to some other more personal questions later. But let's let's just get right into the compost tea now. And and tell us about the, the the process for for making it. Yeah, sure. So I will take. I make my own. Recently, have uh, just been making my own brewers at home. I don't use like what's pictured here. Uh, I would love to have something like that, but I just haven't. Um, I just use a very inexpensive do-it-yourself homemade brewer that I made myself which is the brew barrel, that the blue brew barrel that you see uh, saw a few minutes ago. Um, I, uh, no matter what size of container I'm using, whether it's 500 or five gallons, uh, 50 gallons or 500 gallons, I will get my water out ahead of time and fill the brewer to let the water acclimate and get to the ambient temperature of what it's going to be applied to. Um, so generally, if you're getting water out, you know, if it's in the summertime, if you're getting water out of your hose, uh, just from the house water, it's going to be colder. So you have to let it get up to temperature. Um, so yeah, you want to let the water get up to ambient temperature. And then also by letting it sit out longer, you're going to let the any chlorine or chloramine in there off gas. You can um, reduce the time that you're doing that by adding an air pump to it and pumping air into there to help off gas more chlorine and chloramine. And then uh, I'm taking 
my compost that I make at home and I've got a brew bag and putting compost into a brew bag and agitating that in water for a certain length of time. And it depends on the ambient temperature outside. When it's colder outside, it takes longer to brew compost tea than in the summertime or warmer months. Um, there's gonna, just due to the oxygen that's available and the activity level of the microorganisms, um, that's why when it's colder out, uh, colder ambient temperatures outside, it's gonna take longer to reach uh, what I call peak population in the compost tea. So when you put compost in a mesh bag, and put it in water, you're extracting so many microorganisms off the surfaces of that compost or that organic matter in your water into the water. So say just for an easy number, we've got a thousand microorganisms that are on the surfaces of the compost that you're putting in the water. You're extracting those 1000 microorganisms and you're adding foods to the compost tea and letting it brew and you're trying to reach a peak population of say 10 times that or 100 times that. At a certain point, the organisms are gonna have used up the food, all the food and the oxygen, and you're gonna start to have anaerobic, especially bacteria start to take over. And you'll, uh, if you were to um, graph the numbers of the population of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, especially bacteria and protozoa, which we can get into more the details of these characters in a minute if you have questions about them. Um, but we're especially increasing the populations of those. And then if you were to graph it, the population would continue to go steadily up. And then at a certain point, there's a quick drop off where things start to go anaerobic and at a rather quick pace after that, um, the compost tea brew is gonna have more anaerobic microorganisms than aerobic or beneficial microorganisms. So I'm trying to get to that peak population. Uh, and so that's what is dependent on the time and temperature outside. Uh, so I brew for, in the summertime, 12 to 24 hours. In the early spring, like March or April, I'm brewing for even up to two and a half, three days, generally not that long, but uh, two, two and a half days. Uh, and then I will empty my compost tea out of the brewer. I like to put it through a second strainer bag. So I'm, there's going to be a good amount of sediment that's in the compost tea at that point that you want to strain out. Uh, if you're using a water can, watering can or something with large holes or large output, you wouldn't really necessarily have to worry about that much sediment in the water, but I'm using a sprayer generally. And so I'm trying to reduce the amount of sediment that's going to be in the water that could clog up my sprayer. Um, yeah, and then with compost tea, I'm applying it. We were at Rodale, we were doing research at five gallons per acre, which is very minimal. If you can think of having, you know, five gallon containers out over a, an acre, that's uh, pretty, it's really not very much. Um, that's what we did research with. I generally spray 10 to 20 gallons per acre, which still isn't much. Uh, so I'm putting that 10 to 20 gallons 
of compost tea into water and that water is acting as a carrier just simply to help to get that amount of compost tea out over a whole acre or whatever size of land that I'm spraying it or applying it to. Uh, so you, you can dilute the compost tea down pretty much however much you need or not at all, um, just depending on what you're applying it to and how you're applying it. What other questions and, do you have? Um, yeah, I'm sure that the audience has got a bunch of them, but I'm gonna keep going here for a second. Um, on one of the slides there, it, it talked about cost. We'll get back to that later. But um, when you spray it, um, let's, whether you're diluting it with water or not, are you um, spraying it on the um, plant leaf surfaces and them directly or onto soils around? And how do you choose the best timing? Or do you do it multiple times during a growing season? Good questions. Um, so when I'm going out, uh, I advertise myself as spraying landscapes, lawns, gardens, or farms. Um, and when I'm going out, I'm spraying compost tea on the foliage of plants or trees, as well as doing a soil soak around the root zone. So um, if this is my plant, I'll come in and spray all around here, and then I'll hold my hose down to the root zone around the root zone of the plant and make sure and soak that real well, and then just move from plant to plant. Or on a lawn, I'll just make sure and spread it evenly. And then I also have a root injector, so I have the capability of injecting compost tea into root zones of trees and larger plants. Uh, and then, see, what was the second part of your question? Um, no, I think you've got it. I was, I was said I'll ask a little later about costs. Um, if uh, is you know you got money for a grant at Rodale way back, um, how has compost tea been studied? since that time to where there's been results about its effectiveness in increasing plant fertility or increasing soil microbes. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. That's probably easier. But um, because my sense tells me, because I've known about soil composting and have done it myself for at least 30 years, and yet I don't see around me, and I'm a full-time farmer, and I hang with full-time farmers, and I most of them are non-regenerative, they're industrial farmers, I call them. They're good, they're not bad people, but they're doing bad things. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm a I'm an evangelist, so they know that. And some of them choose not to be around me and others put up with me. But I haven't seen a huge movement towards use of more compost tea. What, so there's a two-part question there. Uh, one is, is part of the reason for that because it hasn't had a lot of research done, and you know, other than that, very early? Or, or, and the second part is, 
Am I right or wrong? Are you seeing, because you live with it, it's your total passion. Are you seeing more usage than what, what I'm seeing? Um, what I have noticed, no, I can't say that I'm probably noticing anything more than what you're seeing. Um, there's not a lot of research, uh, you know, like university research or anything like that, just mainly backyard scientists and things like that. Um, the, the most research recent, or I should say the one that I, the research that I am aware of that is the most recent is, uh, Dr. David Johnson and the Johnson Sioux bioreactor. Uh, the compost that he's making, and he's also making extracts with that, uh, and doing he's he's doing research with um, oh he, I think I thought he's in Arizona, but he's doing research with Chico University of California Chico, or maybe he's just doing classes there, or that's where his composting things through. But I was thinking that he was in Arizona, but yeah, Dr. David Johnson has done different. Uh, published research uh, recently. Um, I mean, what I notice from my following and from seeing people that Hel Elaine have worked with is that most people that are interested in this type of thing are in other parts of the world where they're not having um, big pharma crammed down their throat pretty much uh, on a constant basis. <laughs> or people who don't have access to those chemicals um, and, you know, are basically kind of fending for themselves, trying to find uh, natural fertility and ways of, to fertilize their plants so that they can provide on the farm or just for their own means. Um, so, yeah, there's, I haven't, other than, yeah, mentioning those ones that, uh, her name's i'll put this well i'll cover up her email and everything uh you can do a google search for her name dr gladys zanati arrowdale she's done so uh she has one published paper uh, that i was able to google and find some information on uh, the one that I was talking about regarding nematodes. But other than that, yeah, it's really hard to find any recent research, um, yeah, on, on compost or compost extract. I don't know why. The I know the USDA organic regulations have become more lenient when it comes to things with compost uh, tea. Like they used to strictly only allow compost extract and now they've been allowing tea that if you follow the 90 120 rule like uh not applying it on foliage of plants um above ground plants for 120 days or root plants for 90 days i might be having that mixed up but yeah other than that yeah i don't it's it's difficult so let's go to soil fertility here, which, uh, which is something you, um, when we were talking about microscopy, uh, it's one of the things that you're measuring there. Um, and we just saw a root 
uh, mass, which was clearly very had had a high level of soil fertility in it. It's really easy, by the way, to determine by visual, by you know, your eyes, sort of non-healthy soil from healthy soil. Um, yeah. Um, I could talk about this talk experiment. About this is this is pretty neat experiment. If you want me to talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about this. While I was at Rodale, um, I wasn't specifically involved with this, but I was there seeing it all happen, and I was alongside the um, microscope analysis that was taken and everything like that. This was a six-week experiment where they took the, you can see in the background there, there are four-foot by eight-foot raised beds, and they filled them with um, manufactured soil or uh, what's the other word for it? It's basically compost and sand and other things mixed together, giving you like the perfect growing medium that people uh, use to fill in, well, people that have money that are purchasing a, or building a new home and needing to replace topsoil, whatever in their lawn, they'll use this um, so, this type of soil. So it's it's an ideal growing condition. That's why you got such great results. But it does show the difference between what can happen. Um, so that picture that you're showing right now is a picture that I took of a picture on my blueberry. That's why it's so uh, fuzzy and not that great. But those roots right there are 20 to 22 inches long. Um, and that's the one that I was holding. And a lot of the soil aggregates had broken off of the roots. And you can really clearly see the roots there, where in the other picture, um, you can see the difference between compost tea and conventional. So, so with the experiment, there were six raised beds, six four by eight raised beds, and three of the beds got chemical applications. Um, I believe it was once a week, and same as like when you hire Scotts or Chemlon or whatever to come to your house, they were applying um, nitrogen fertilizer to the grass there. And then the other three beds got uh, nothing but compost tea. And it was only a six week experiment, which is not much time in a plant's life and not a long time to get a lot of root growth generally. But in only six weeks, we were able to get, or they were able to get 20 to 22 inch long roots uh, and all that aggregation in the soil that you can see on the roots there. Uh, with compost tea, whereas the side that next to it version was a uh, chemical applications because those plants were getting chemicals and all the nutrients that they needed through the chemicals, they really didn't need to put on much root growth. So the uh, sod that had had the chemicals applied to it, you could roll most of it up. Most of it you could roll up like the day that they applied it and unrolled it. You could roll it right back up and take it away. It was it was insane. Yeah. And did did the researcher there attempt to publish anything from that? Um, that was an experiment that Elaine put together with James, well, the, the late James Satillo from Ecological Landscape Management, I believe is the name of his company, out of New York State. Um, and I believe that there was the intention was to publish research from that, but I 
Elaine had a whole lot of projects going on at the same time there that she was wanting to do and publish research for that um, there was so much happening that I think a lot of it just kind of got swept under the table and didn't get you know published or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So let's go to the microorganisms. Um, as you looked at, as you would look at um, whatever you look at, and I'll let you tell us that in a second, between those two um, batches, the two, the soil that had had um, organic, excuse me, it had exclusively versus it had industrial fertilization. Um, what would you see different? What would be the difference in soil fertility? And, and how would you identify that? Well, with the the experiment that you were just talking about there, interestingly enough, um, it was expected to see the uh, characters of the soil food web uh, added through the compost tea. So we expected to see bacteria, fung possibly fungi, and then protozoa nematodes. And then with the chemical, the expected or chemical applications, the expected result was that we would basically have just bacteria in there. Um, and when, because it was such a short experiment, they were basically seeing still nothing but bacteria with just a little bit, uh, a little bit of protozoa in the uh, compost tea applications. It, it was a blind study, so when they were doing the microscope analysis, they the individuals involved didn't know the sample that they were looking at. They were just sampling it and giving the results. But yeah, it ended up that they were very similar looking. Um, for me, generally, when I'm working with a soil, uh, like in Nashville, we'll have really, I just moved here from the Nashville area. That's why I mentioned Nashville. Um, I was working, there was a lot of new homes that were being built and that area has a very high clay content in their soil. So there's easily compacted soil. They've got, they're building houses. They've got bringing heavy machinery in to build the house. They're removing the topsoil and running heavy machinery on it. So they're getting a lot of compaction. So like when I would look at a soil from that, you're basically just have bacteria uh not really much fungi or any other organisms and then after depending on the yard but generally a few applications then i was able to get higher organisms uh higher trophic levels of organisms in there so getting more protozoa and uh predators that are going to eat bacteria and fungi um I, when you were saying that, we're able to show on that slide. And that was the, the real obvious organism was an, was a, some kind of a arthropod, and and I would yeah. assume you more arthropods, you see a much healthier soil because they need to have protozoans and and fungi, uh, nematodes to eat. So that's right. their food. Um, yeah, it's not often that I see arthropods, so it's really cool when I do get to see an arthropod, but you're absolutely correct. They're relying on lower organisms that is part of their diet. So when they're moving through the soil, arthropods such as this or 
earthworms and things like that. Um, they are eating protozoa, but through through that function, they're also chewing on soil or uh, organic matter, I should say, in the soil and breaking that organic matter down into smaller pieces, which is going to increase the surface area of it and which is going to allow more bacteria and fungi to come along uh, on the surfaces of those and break them down even farther. So these are going to be shredders that are going to make soil organic matter even smaller while they're consuming uh, protozoa and, and possibly fungi as well. Right. Um, so um, in your current farming efforts, whether they be just your own backyard or you mentioned that you came there and was able to get a job with an organic uh, farm, how, how much are you able to use compost tea? Or is that still a, a selling situation? at least at the no. commercial level? Um, well, one of the main reasons that I came on with the organic farm that I had been this past year, uh, she, I met this woman uh, who, she's had an organic farm for like 15 years. There's one of the most recent examples of using compost tea on garlic, dipping it before I planted it. Um, I met this woman, I was helping Elaine to teach a class at Rodale, uh, soil food web class and this woman was attending that and we've just kind of kept talking even though I wasn't living here we've talked through Facebook or uh, phone call every few years or whatever and uh, just kept in touch and so she's been a big fan of Elaine's and Elaine actually had gone out to her farm to uh, do some help her with some things out there but so she's totally on board with using uh, compost extract and compost teas. It's Ole Valley Organics. Um, she was all about incorporating compost tea or extract as much as I could on the farm. So yeah, that picture just a few minutes ago, just this past fall, we were planting, their main crops are asparagus, garlic, strawberries, uh, I'm missing one, uh, but mainly garlic. So I had, uh, soaked all of the garlic cloves for uh, five to ten minutes before planting in a compost extract and then went out and planted them and generally we're getting like six to eight roots uh, initially in the first couple weeks when you after planting um, cloves if you just happen to you know we would come in to, to do other things and happen to pop up a bulb and you just checking on it, you can see that there's like six to eight roots. Um, after planting this garlic and having soaked it in compost extract, um, I was in the bed doing something. I don't know if I was putting mulch, mulch layer down or something like that. And I happened to kick up a few bulbs and they were, it, it wasn't just a freak accident that a few of them are like that. I mean, they were all showing, uh, same result, the similar results where I was counting like 25 to 30 root hairs on that uh, garlic clove there. So incorporating biology as soon as possible on seeds or plants is uh, highly beneficial. Yeah, you can see the number of roots there is, is in that 
high range, not four or five. Um, all right. Um, what do you see? What do you see yourself doing? Ten years from now? Did you say ten years from now? Five to ten. Let's say I don't want it to be short term. So out in the, out into the future. Yeah. Um, well, I just purchased a uh, worm trommel. So I'm for the past four years now. I've been trying to get uh, vermicomposting going on a larger scale as part of my business. And I was gifted a five by five foot by sixteen foot flow through reactor. That's a, a worm compost system. And um, I've been waiting for a place to be able to get that set up and not having a place to set it up. That's the trommel, not the flow through system. That's the trommel that I recently purchased, but uh, waiting for the right time or right place and not been able to make it happen. So I've just decided to start as small as I need to, uh, to get things going and see how quick it grows. But um, I do a lot of educational outreach. Um, so I, I'd really like to um, have possibly a published, something published by then um, on compost and microscopy or uh, something like that and doing much more consulting on soils and working with growers. Um, but I really enjoy, yeah, doing educational outreach and presentations and speaking like that. I, I, I was going to mention, I just, so uh, the organic farm um, didn't quite work out the way things were supposed to plan the way life does. Uh, and I recently have come on board with uh, that urban worm company. Uh, it's, a, it's a gentleman that lives nearby here who uh, he does a lot of, he is mainly, what's mainly important to him is getting information out there for households and individuals to be composting at home, especially using worms, obviously. And so he sells a few products. Uh, the Urban Worm Bag is one of them, but um, I'm gonna be helping to do a lot of written content for him. And we're gonna be putting out a lot more content on uh, pretty much what I do now, but he, uh, he's a lot more proficient at making things look pretty. Uh, I've got the knowledge and the experience of doing this stuff. I just don't always make it look pretty for Instagram and uh, things like that. So uh, working together as a team, we should be able to do to put out some pretty cool content of uh, educational stuff. Cool. Tell us a little bit about your your youth. Were you encouraged by either family or teachers or just others, friends and such to follow your love of nature that you describe? Um, I, I would, well, uh, my parents have always uh, taken me hiking and uh, 
I, I can look back at it as a kid and remember being dragged around to places like that. Not that they're huge, like environmental people or anything, but they do enjoy nature a lot. Um, so I, yeah, have gotten my love of nature from my family. Um, uh, and then, yeah, just wanted to follow, follow my bliss and follow my passion once that hit 10 years ago or whatever. Is Elaine still a, uh, a mentor and somebody that you um, try to gain information from whenever you can, and and then also who else might be? I talked about Dave Johnson for one, and uh, so anyway, two-part question: uh, Is Elaine in that range? And then are there is there some, somebody else? I haven't talked to Elaine since I left Rodale. Um, strictly because we both are busy and I just never had reached out to her since then. Um, so yeah, I haven't really talked to Elaine. Um, another person that I would say is a mentor to me is uh, Rhonda Sherman from North Carolina State University. Uh, she holds the Vermaculture Conference every year at North Carolina State and just wrote the book a few years ago, uh, The Worm Farmer's Handbook. So she's big into, well, she's known for worm composting, but she's big into a lot of um, organics, recycling, waste reduction, and things like that. That's what she's done at uh, North Carolina State. Uh, pretty, pretty much those two people. Um, I'm, I'm into mycology stuff as well. So, uh, I like Trad Cotter a lot. I really look up to him. We're, um, I see him a lot at conferences and stuff, and we chat. We're kind of buddies anyway. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he won't call me a friend, but I really look up to him. I really respect his work. Uh, uh, Paul Stamets, obviously, but I really, I really enjoy Trad. I really enjoy listening to Trad and what he does with mushrooms and, and fungi and his creative, uh, his creative way of using fungi and getting it out into the world. Uh, Trad Cotter is in South Carolina and has my, uh, Mushroom Mountain for anyone who might be interested in checking that out. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, other than that, um, I can't think of anyone else at, offhand. How about um, a couple of little sort of Interesting questions. Um, what's a uh, what's a what's what's something you've read recently that's longer than a tweet? Okay, so it's a blog article at least that long, and maybe it's a book or maybe it's even longer that you would recommend to anyone. And it doesn't have to be, by the way, in uh, uh, soil fertility. You could. I saw a little interest in. in 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 sci-fi because of a video that we'd play. Um, but um, anyway, by the way, um, could I see, do you know who the either secondary or primary author of Soil Biology Primer is? Uh, no. I mean, the USDA is whoever at the USDA, whenever it was put together, it's been a while. 
I don't know. I think I don't even know the other. I think I guess, it's uh, who I is think the, one of the authors. Clive Edwards right. might be the worm author. There's a section on worms, but I can't think of the other authors who are on there. Um, let's see. One of the authors is Lance Prescott, who was a college professor with me, and uh, okay. wrote also the the textbook soil biology that was used probably more often in a undergraduate soil biology course than than any other. And he just happened to be a contemporary of mine. And I think he was at least one of the compiling authors of the soil biology primer too. Anyway, that's just an aside. But I know um, I've seen that name in there. Um, I'm, I've currently got a book by my bedside that uh, I can't think of the, I can't think of the name of it. I can run and grab it. It's like 10 seconds away if you want me to. Otherwise it's a book. I'll go ahead and get it. I'll be right back. Hey, everybody. There's a bunch of you out there and not a lot of questions. Put them in. I'm going to start asking questions from the audience in about five minutes or less. And put some in. Um, it's mainly, it's more of a fun book, but there's a lot of just little actual research stuff in there. The Earth Moved. Very cool. Yeah. Where's the author there? Okay, Amy Stewart. Okay. He did Wicked Plants, if you've heard of that book. I think that was more well known. Yeah, and she's a New York Times bestseller because that means it that means it's something more fun too, which is kind of cool. It's fun, yeah. I've actually I've actually been through reading that. I'll like get names of people who've done worm research and like look up those people and like find out a bunch of other cool stuff. Cool. Um, what's a tool that sometime in the last six months that you just started to use that is one you'd recommend to others? And it could be a physical tool. It could be an internet related tool, you name it. And it, again, doesn't have to have anything to do with with soil fertility, um, right? Just our audience loves to hear about things they might be able to. That's an check interesting out question. That's an interesting question. Um, uh, I would, you know, I hate to. I'm not a tech person at all, but there's so many apps on the your phone that like provide so many so much uh help to me I, I was trying to think of something on there that's what i was starting to look for um i honestly can't think of anything that i've used in the past that's new to me uh, you're not that's not unusual so of the thousand plus people i've asked this question um maybe three or four hundred of them had the same answer i don't know i can't think of one but boy, yeah. i've had a bunch that have had really cool things um so um now this is one that's kind of interesting but um tell us about something and you can be very broad or you can be very specific and you don't have to name any names but um that happened in your life 
that at the time seemed incredibly negative, that now you look back on it, it actually was, was very positive. Um, well, uh, the biggest thing that comes to mind, I'm a recovering alcoholic, uh, so I went through some pretty bad times with that, to be honest with you. Uh, okay. I'm a much better person because I went through that horrible crap. Uh, it, I mean, not that I was a bad, I, I shouldn't say I'm a better person. Uh, the, the, the good part of me comes out a lot more, I should say, uh, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely does. And you're not the only one that has had that as their experience. So, by the way, I think I saw an alpaca in a previous. There was an alpaca. Here. Yep. My, uh, I had a neighbor, country neighbor up the road. It just so happened that she was a, uh, a lady who worked at my daughter's school that lived just, I moved way out into the country and she just happened to move, live like a mile away. She had alpacas and they poop. When alpacas poop as a herd, they poop all in the same place. And so it's really easy to pick up. So like all you gotta do is go and pick it up and it's great. Uh, it's great to use. So that's, yeah, that's why I was there. I was on the lookout cold, for... Which What's means that? you can, from a, fertilization perspective it's cold which means as soon as it, it comes is. out of their butt put it on yeah. um soil and, and it won't burn up plants so if you take cattle yes. poop or horse poop and try to put it out into a, a, a raised bed like we showed there it would burn the plants up it's hot and that's not the case and i don't mean temperature wise it, it, it's right. got ingredients yeah. chemicals chemical in reaction the nitrogen where here, um, alpacas is not. We are alpaca. We're, we have at one point we have the largest herd in in the Western United States. We've come way down in our numbers, so we're not nearly that high anymore. But I probably have now because I'll be applying it in the future. Um, the high, the most I have during the year. But I have a row of composted alpaca poop and waste hay that they don't eat. They actually, by the way that we feed, we create a compost that needs nothing else. It literally can have the alpaca pellets and all the waste that sort of the, so the combination of brown and green waste is just perfect. Um, it's probably our, our row that we have right now because we're we'll be applying it in our field within the next couple of weeks, weather dependent. Two hundred yards long, twenty yards wow. wide, twenty feet tall. Dang, and that's we, a lot of get, When we get new, we put it at one end because we sell it too. We have a really good market for alpaca compost manure. Um, and we put the new stuff at one end because we don't have time to turn it. We don't have time to move it around. So we it could be much better than it is. And we apply it on 
about 40 acres of pasture and probably this deep um, in the spring. And we believe that we've taken, well, we know we have, we've taken what were not fertile at all um, pastures and turned them into grass mecca. Um, and, uh, and, and, and again, we've done soil looking at root pods, root, root, uh, by the way, there's a vehicle coming by here that I didn't see it. it sounded like a four wheeler that shouldn't be here. We live at the end uh -huh. of the road, we have a yeah. gate and whenever I hear a sound and I, my window, my office window looks right out to um, the road that loops around the property, but I didn't see that, so I don't know what it was. Boy, yeah, you, she's got a number of alpacas there. Um, anyway, uh, alpacas make nice, kind of nice um, fertility, for fertile starting point for compost. And I want to do some compost tea, so I'm going to be um, hiring you at some point here to help me um, from a consulting perspective. And we also do a number of live events here where we have teachers that come in from all over the country, sometimes the world, to teach about a whole wide variety of topics, include from all the way from running to mountain biking to every kind of regenerative agriculture you could imagine. I would, I wanna to talk to you about doing a weekend kind of a seminar for us at some point. So yeah, I'd we'll love talk to. About that. Well, it is almost the top of the hour. I while you walk walk to get the book, I asked the audience to to put questions in. And our audience is very shy about questions. I only have one here, so I'm gonna ask it. Okay. Actually it looks like I have a couple and they're from the same person about the same topic. And I'm going to ask these. No, it was just one. I thought there was two. What is the best possible microbial population to grow mushrooms? And you're obviously you've used you've used compost tea in for mushrooms because I've seen several pictures there on your Instagram. That comes from Kim, by the way. Um. I'm a I'm a little confused. They that yeah, I, I don't, yeah, the number of populations in the like, soil. Part of the question would precede it. Is there anything different you would do for a compost tea that you put on mushrooms versus one you put on a lawn or put on um, vegetables in raised beds? Uh well I don't I don't apply compost tea to mushrooms specifically or mushroom substrate. Um, generally, when you're growing mushrooms, you uh, it's kind of a different scenario where you're really trying to limit the microorganisms or especially the fungi. Like uh, this is a totally different topic, but um, like when you have mushroom substrate, you're, you sterilize that substrate so that you don't have any other microorganisms because you're wanting a specific strain of fungi to take over that substrate and then fruit to grow your mushrooms. 
so there is bacteria and other things that are involved with mushroom like mycelium growth within that substrate and stuff like that but you're more wanting to try to limit the number of things that are in there so that you're not contaminating substrate with uh, molds or anything like that so um i i yeah i can't you would not use a compost so the answer yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's why I was, through that answer, that's why I was really confused on how to answer the first part of it because I wasn't sure if they were speaking of mushroom substrate or like a soil that you're seeing mushrooms come up in. Um, yeah, because it's kind of two different things. So, so but I have had people say, I have had people say after applying compost tea to their landscape, specifically landscape more than lawns, um, that they have, they've had mushrooms come up that they didn't before have mushrooms that were coming, that were popping up, that were fruiting, that it was after the compost tea application it inoculated the soil, or possibly there was already that fungi in the soil and the interactions between microorganisms allowed the environment for it to fruit uh, one or the other, but it definitely uh, had an impact. The the biology from the compost tea definitely had an impact on the soil. In this, these pastures that I have that have had compost for them, I'm, absolutely I see more mushrooms now, and I see them in a wide variety of times during the year. Used to be you'd nice. see them spring. I see them year round now, literally even into the winter if, when there's snow melting, I mean, right as the snow might be coming off the ground. Um, and I, at some point, I'm gonna hire an intern or bring somebody on that will go out and classify them. I haven't done that. And I know I've got lion's mane and I've got a variety of, of, of more well-known ones, but I've got a number of others too. And, and I, again, I didn't used to see any. Now, remember, the, the grass was terrible, too. I mean, I didn't have any almost dead soil because it was a overgrazed cattle field, way overgrazed. Um, yeah. I first took it on um, 16 years ago. And it took about five years before literally it got to where it was growing much of anything. Um, and it was about that time we started to accumulate alpaca manure compost also. So um, that was a good timing, but gosh, absolutely. I see a lot more mushrooms. I mean, to where I didn't see any, and, and or if I did, it was in a very narrow time frame. and now it's year round. Um, so. Yeah. Hopefully that means there's multiple species in there that are fruiting at various times throughout the year yeah. then too yeah I'm, it is it is a, a very uh diverse community um so i've got multiple i do have i know i have multiple species anyway well we are past the top of the hour i don't see any other questions areeb do you have any questions or mark um or um aaron is one of my staff that just came on by phone and she said she could type question if she had one and she, she she usually does but she didn't put one in here i have a question 
So we go. I think yeah. that this is scalable to industrial farming and possibly the future um, of fertilization. Did well, that I'm, make sense? I'm gonna answer it. <laughs> I'm gonna answer it first. A 40 acre pasture growing, what's my, what would be my tonnage of hay? Because we do mow some and then we feed others directly to livestock is absolutely industrial in scale. We're growing a herd of 100 alpaca that are eating that. And you could you could live off of the revenues you'd make from 100 alpacas. Because So that's an industrial scale. So we're doing it at an industrial scale. Not with tea, with compost. But, but tea would be better. <laughs> I know it would. So. Anyway, then I'm going to go back to Troy. Let him answer. Did you finish the question? Because if it didn't cut out, and I did. I missed the last part of your question. She said, she said, "Is there examples, or do you believe that you could scale compost tea usage to where it could be used at an industrial type scale?" And I'm going to define that for you, Aaron. And, and, and say that's that means it's something that is commercial, really. You're saying industrial, but we always, we say industrial ag, it almost completely implies the use of fertilizers, heavy nitrogen usage, and, and pesticides and herbicides. And I don't think you mean that. I think you mean no. commercial scale. I mean commercial, and also do you think that it is the future of commercial farming, since it's, I'm assuming better for the environment. And that's the end of the question. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, well, for one thing, I think that a lot of commercial farms, I mean, there's a certain scale of things that we need, but um, we really don't need so much corn and soy that we're growing right now. I think the system could be changed, but if we're going to grow things on such a large scale, I absolutely think that it would be feasible to produce compost extract and be able to apply it on that large of a scale. Um, it's, you know, it may not be as easy. I, well, I mean, I guess it would be, yeah. So, you know, a, a, a conventional farmer is gonna fill a tank with water and then possibly pour a powder in there and mix that up uh, and then go apply it. In that same sense, we could have a giant tank that we're making compost extract that you're putting compost in a bag and putting in the water, mixing it up, just taking like 10 minutes to agitate it, filling the tank to go out and spray that, uh, applying as much as you can. And then in the time that that's getting applied, you could be making more extract. So it'd just be a matter of keeping up with keeping the brew tank filled um it, it might be a, a matter a bit more matter of uh filling up the tank more often filling up a water tank more often on a sprayer but um you're not going to be using chemicals so it could we i have like when i worked at rodale we were doing a research with a guy who's a large-scale corn and soy farmer especially corn and um yeah, we talked about him do, not doing it on a large scale. 
Uh, do I think it's the future that part of that? Yes, it should be the future. Um, but again, I feel that the system needs to be changed where we're not farming the way uh, the, the these giant um, industrial farmers that you're talking about. Um, I really feel like that's not really sustainable and the way to go. And I mean, economically, if you look at what they're making, it's really not sustainable financially. And that's why a lot of farmers are about to go bankrupt, like huge, the big, big time farmers. Not about to go bankrupt, I shouldn't say. They're on the brink of bankruptcy. A lot of them are bankrupt and they're staying alive. <laughs> The bank keeps funding them. Um, exactly, Aaron, the bank yeah. and the government. Aaron, we did approach this question a little bit, and we were both skeptics about the future and wish, wished we weren't, but the ingrained and the, the influence of big pharma, big ag, is so strong that you can't even get universities to get grants to do the research that's needed before big farmers would even consider this. Right. And, uh, and so it's, a, it's not very optimistic, Aaron. <laughs> I wish we could. Well, I was just having this conversation with some people today, and I hope I'm not taking too much time here because I know we're over. It is, it is, specifically with farmers they're so bullheaded more than i mean any human is stubborn but with when it comes to change but farmers especially because they're making such little money off of an acre they really uh they can't risk trying something different and um shoot i just lost the point of what i was about to say oh yeah so what i was going to say was um in order to change a farmer's mind, I really feel like, like, just from my own experience and listening to people, listening to farmers, you know, like they will learn from another farmer. If another farmer, if they drive by another farm that's like got cover crops going, that's something totally different, you know, like the, the community is going to start talking about it. And it may be super questionable at first, but once someone is uh, showing success, then it will catch on and i really feel like um i really feel like especially using cover crops it's really starting to spread i grew up in iowa my dad's in iowa he is a retired banker but he's working with um doing some mental health stuff with a lot of farmers and he's telling me that there's all kinds of corn farmers that are switching over and starting to use cover crops so i i and you know like we've got ray archuleta and gabe brown and other guys are doing that soil university and the more people that we can get out like that educating farmers if it's not going to be the universities if we can get farmers educating farmers they're going to listen more likely to listen to each other and uh i i'm seeing a shift i'm seeing a movement and it's it's cool even if it's just a conventional farmer switching to try cover crops thank you for your answer yeah the worst thing that most farmers do is sell. Most of them will tell you in private, if you're sitting in a coffee shop or a bar with them, that they hate to sell. 
they didn't they didn't become a farmer to sell. So the reality is most of them that are producing corn and soy sell to one place, the local grain elevator. And yeah. when you ask them why, why don't you look at other alternatives, other options? They'll say, well, my dad did it that way. My grandpa did it that way. My neighbors do it that way. I'm going to do it that way. Right. And, um, and then there's rebels like Gabe Brown or Ray Archuleta or um, Will Harris in, in Georgia. Or, I mean, these are the biggest ones who have chosen to do things differently. And, and they, so for, they, they use no-till. No-till is, is something that has caught on in a bigger way than, than a lot of people even know. And even the, the more industrial type farmers are using no-till, even when they do still use fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides. So there's an example of something that's really good that caught on. They need to do some other things along with it. Um, right. And, 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 you know, again, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. You, you're going to do a little garden in your backyard, um, Aaron, in a, in a little patch that used to be grass. What are you going to do first? What's the first thing you're going to do in that little patch? Hmm, putting me on the spot. Well, I was going to say till, but... I'm thinking that's the wrong answer. <laughs> she is really smart, by the way. This is one of my staff, uh, Troy. Yeah, you, you know, you're, most of us would go out there with a shovel. We would dig up that grass that's at the surface, and then we dig down into the soil, maybe six, eight inches, and, and we turn the soil over. We till it. Instead, you shouldn't do that. You, you should take that grass off the surface, probably just with your hands, pull it out. And then don't turn that soil over. That's been, there's a lot of research on that, that it doesn't, it, it, it only hurts to go in there and till it. And still, that's the way most people do gardening and, and, and still done more. There's a lot more tilled acres than are no-tilled. But anyway, um, and that's a lot less experimental than using compost teas. So yeah. And why is, is that? Is it because it disrupts the microbiome? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that exactly is what it does. Completely disrupting the microbiome. Those, those microbes that are growing near the surface are there for a reason. <laughs> That's where they like. And uh, yeah, you, you, you bring up that soil from down below. It doesn't mean you're going to kill the site you're still going to eventually get growth. It's going to go back to where there are microbes at the surface that are there because they want to be there, but not right away. Um, and a lot of people are so results-oriented quickly that that garden is going to go bad on them so fat early, and then they're going to quit. Um, by the way, the, the amount of waste from gardens is ridiculous. <laughs> um, but we ought to be focusing and making sure we use everything that we grow in various different garden sides. But anyway, uh, we should stop. Um, we're 15 minutes after, we're keeping Troy here longer. Aaron, great questions. Um, Kim, Thank you. great question from you. I was totally wrong about that. I, I really learned something there. 
Troy, it's been awesome. I've greatly enjoyed it. I'm sure the audience have. Throw in some ones, everybody, if you like this. That's our that's our way of applause. So just you haven't typed questions, but just put some ones in if you enjoyed this. Um, and um, I'm sure we'll see some of those coming up here in just a second. All one. Um, here we go. Faye actually asked a question now. Um, well, I'll ask this one, but we're we're going over here. Um, this is Faye, who's one of our regulars from New Zealand. I have a lot of brown rot in my orchard in Nelson, New Zealand. So now I'm going to mow flat, cover with cardboard, and then mulch to try to stop this. I don't see a question there, but you know maybe that I'll I'll make it a question and say, what do you think of that approach, um, Troy? Uh, it sounds like a good approach. Um, I mean, there's a, probably a there's a whole I lot of variables there, but um, it sounds like a, an approach that uh, starting over by cutting it all down and then covering it with cardboard and smothering it out, I would think should help to prevent it in the future, but you never know. She says the grass is what's causing the high humidity, um, which makes sense. Um, by the way, I believe she's probably already growing, farming the way we like in a good way. So uh, yeah. with her orchards and other things that she has. So um, so that's very good to see you. It's uh, it's nice to have you on here. And that's a great question. All right, I think we're gonna let Troy go, everybody. One more chance. Um, we got some some ones in there that are applause thank you for that and um this was awesome again come and listen to william horvath do a, a webinar on friday at same time three o'clock and mark you have anything else we, we we put up contact information for troy so you know how to reach him from what we put on this on the slides um the replay of this will be up and 48 hours or so. Um, Troy, anything last thoughts? No, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, it's been great. It's a fun conversation here. I actually, I might be, or I probably will reach out to you in the next few days uh, to ask you about some microscope questions since you're an expert on that. Yeah. Thank you for having me though. And thank you all for listening. Hey everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.